I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the second season of Drive, delivered by DHL, where we hear the stories of fashion's most dynamic entrepreneurs in their own words. In our final episode of the season, BOF's Lauren Sherman sits down with Michael Pressman, founder and CEO of Everlane, which is now a global business. Michael shares his experience of building Everlane from the ground up and putting sustainability and something he calls radical transparency first. But it wasn't easy. We hear about the challenges of auditing factories in countries with low labor standards, the complex process of deciphering how to price products fairly, and learning to focus on solving the most impactful issues before he lays out his ambitious plan to go carbon neutral. You have to balance what you think is right for the planet and then what is right for the customer. And oftentimes, there are people who are too much on the planet side, and as a result, you're getting a very expensive product that is 100% sustainable, but not affordable by anybody. This like tension, which I think is really good, that ultimately keeps pushing you to do the thing that can be best for both, but it takes a lot of time to get there. And if you take too much time to do that, you'll never launch anything. So you're always balancing time, customer, and planet. So here is Lauren Sherman and Michael Pressman on what it really takes to create a sustainable global enterprise. How's it going? How are you feeling? Um, I'm feeling good. I'm glad we're able to do this now, and congratulations on Williamsburg. Oh, thank you. Have you been buying? It looks great. Yeah, it's good. Oh, yeah. It's, it feels like, I wish every store could feel that good, but it feels really, um, it's really special. It's, it's where all your people are. I know. It is. Maybe we can start with, you know, I, I actually didn't know that you went to Carnegie Mellon. I, I'm from Pittsburgh. Oh, are you from Pittsburgh? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. But so the thing I'm curious about is you you went to Carnegie Mellon you then you went into is Elevation a VC firm or an investment firm or yeah, it was a or what happened yeah you? it was like a growth equity yeah it was a, a growth equity firm investment firm and so how did you end up going into that how did you get there and I know the whole story I think most of the people who are listening to this have heard the the story of like your initial idea for Everlane, but like what were you investing in or looking at then or who were you talking to that made you think that you should start a line that does transparent pricing? Yeah, the the evolution of transparent pricing wasn't so such a straight line. I think oftentimes people believe that there was this idea and then you wouldn't execute it on it. And oftentimes you sort of fall into these things based on um, sort of an intuition and itch. And for me, it was... You know, I went into investing, honestly, because that's what I thought was right. Um, the world tells you go study engineering or economics and then go into banking or consulting or um, whatever field the world tells you as your parents do. Um, and I did that and it just didn't feel right for me. Like I just I didn't I genuinely didn't enjoy it. And so I left after a few years. I grew up on the West Coast, which was very much the center of online technology, also this whole idea of democratizing information and making things more open and accessible. And then I lived two years in New York and just the shopping and the retail experience. I've always loved retail and branding and design, but it was amazing to see how many people still spent all this energy in Soho or Nolita or in stores and really weren't yet comfortable with the online shopping. And then that sort of made me realize, hey, how do we bring those two worlds together? Um, and it started initially much more from the perspective of this was at the time of Pinterest hadn't even launched yet curation and how do we create a more human experience online? 
And as we started digging into what that felt like, we learned what the markups were. And I learned what the markups were in the industry and said, well, that that's the part that feels broken here. Uh, how do we just be more open and democratic in the way we build a brand and the way we talk to consumers? And that was that evolution. But, uh, you know, the, the actual part of it was I left finance in New York, moved back to the West Coast because it didn't feel right to start a company on the East Coast. I think you need space and energy and people that are positive reinforcement. And so I moved to the West Coast at the time. This was 2010 and spent a year on that, you know, journey of figuring out what the world of retail looked like. Did you know anyone who worked in retail? Did you have family in retail? How did you meet people to to talk to them about how it all works? And, and how did you meet the right investors in that space? Because there weren't as many. Now there are tons of of VC firms that exclusively invest in direct-to-consumer brands. But back then, I'm assuming there weren't that many even looking at product brands. No, yeah, there weren't many. And so we... I didn't know anyone that worked in retail other than how retail worked. And so I guess in some sense, you're a study of retail your whole life because you shop at stores and you, and I've always been fascinated by them and I would just go through and just walk them. But I never, no one in my family has ever worked any retail or anything on the consumer side. My dad, I even worked on the business to business, like much more in technology on that front. And so it was really just more as a student um, of it just day to day. And I think the one thing I will say that I've always done, cause I, you know, people ask this question sometimes, which I, um, which is what do you wish you knew? I think one thing I did do really, really well, um, that, and I've always done really well that a lot of, I'm surprised that how many people don't is two things. One ask so many questions. I mean, I would go knocking on the doors of factories in the Bay area and SF. I would talk to, you know, reach out on LinkedIn, try to be friends with everyone. Like the amount of networking, not for networking sake, but for knowledge was just exhaustive if you're not an, you know, that kind of person, but I am. So that worked really well. And so I learned a lot in that year to year and a half. Every time something didn't feel right, it was like, why? How can we do it better? What I think helped with the investors is that I was from that area. Um, and so we were able to really find an investor community pretty fast that was supportive of what we were doing. At the time, it was much more tech oriented, which was much, how do we bring that human experience to online? So it wasn't straight DTC at that time. That's interesting. And and so when you when you figured out that there were these markups happening in traditional retail and you just thought that was, I guess you thought it was BS, how did you decide that A, I'm going to try to do this differently and B, to communicate it so openly with, with the customer? Like when did you decide that was going to be a big part of, of the launch just being so... I don't think people were using the word transparency in 2011, 2012. And we weren't either. We actually didn't start using it heavily till 2012 or 2013. We launched with a t-shirt and it was just one of those pieces, one of those moments where you say, hey, I have to, you know, I have to make a call. Um, And we had been trying to do things with this more curated online experience and we just shifted the whole piece of it and said, let's go in and build a product at a better price with a better, you know, much more honest and trust-driven story to the customer. And we did that, but then we needed a way to communicate to the customer. I think voice has always been a huge part of the Everlane brand, how we tell stories and how we communicate. And that's when we decided, why don't we just tell people what our cost is? Because that feels honest and fair and they can hold us accountable. Why shouldn't they know? Uh, Because I've always believed that people have the right to information. And when we don't give them information, the only reason we shouldn't be giving information is one, because it, you know, it might harm them or two, because you're still in the process of figuring it out. And you don't always want to be 
totally transparent in the process. But otherwise, I'm a big believer that you know, people should know um, and have the right to information. What was the reaction? I know you got a lot of press initially, but what was the consumer reaction to that when you started to get sales and people would be writing in that sort of thing or what you saw on social media back then? What? How did people react immediately? I The immediate one was, hey, I'm intrigued. What's going on here? I didn't know this about the industry. What I believe we've done and continue to do is be a brand built on an insane level of trust um, because we are very honest. We're willing to admit our mistakes and we're willing to admit how things works and how we think. And that has built just a really strong relationship with our customer to know that we're doing the best we can and the best that our team of, you know, 200 people and, you know, 300 in retail are able to do every day and trying to always be thoughtful for the customer. But we've done a lot of work to build that up. And that's that I think is the piece that Everlane does really well. People trust the product, the quality, the price. And we've continued to deliver on that. The communication that that you guys do has always, uh, it's always stood out to me as being the writing itself being super clear and super straightforward and, and also compelling, which is something that I think email marketing and especially in apparel retail, a lot of people really, really struggle with a lot of brands. Do you have a philosophy around how you approach just the the actual words that you use, that sort of thing when, because it's been like that from the beginning and, and there really haven't been any of your competitors haven't really been able to meet you in, in that way. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a bit that myself and our, um, you know, chief creative both come from some training in sort of journalism. Um, and so we have a very, you know, she studied journalism, um, wrote, uh, before she started in her career of creative, I was, you know, did a ton of school newspaper through high school, college, and just always had that matter of fact, very clear form of writing that was based on truth, less of the embellishment, you know, and adverbs, adjectives, trying to tone those down as much as possible to be really crystal clear with the customer about what they're getting and distilling it down to a simple idea. And that is takes a lot of time. And it you know, I'm still involved with a lot of it. Our chief creative is, is our VP of marketing, like everybody is involved in that process because it, it requires so much iteration to get right. And you have to do it over and over and again. And I think the reason is, is, you know, we have so few styles that we launch. So you've seen other, I would say D to C brands do it, but that's because they just have a few products. When you look at the world of apparel, there's just so much stuff coming out that they don't have time to do that. And if it's not part of your process and part of your uh, DNA, it's just difficult to do. That's what I would say we do really well, that focus. Early on, you, you also, in terms of transparency, you were really open about the factories that you used. You would say, you know, what area of the co- a country they were in. You were You're producing stuff all over the world, it seems like. Remember a video, I feel like, of, of you touring one of your factories maybe in China or or somewhere in in Asia curious to know as you scale and you have to use more factories and and you know it's a you're selling affordable clothes which means it's a it's a business of scale to to some extent at least how did you you know make sure that the factories that you were using were 
or safe where, I mean, you can't be there 24-7 if you don't own them. So so given that you have been so open about it, how have you kind of kept checks on those places that as you, as you bring on new partners, that sort of thing? Yeah, I can. in the early days, it was really much more relationship-oriented, finding people, spending time with them, and actually going and visiting the factories. And I visited all the factories for a long time. And the truth about that was that was really great in terms of finding partnerships, but you sometimes can confuse what people do in a dinner or a day meeting with how they run their business day to day. And I would say there were two factories in the early days that we chose that we felt like we had good relationships with, but ultimately could not get their shit together in terms of people where they were bill they were people were working overtime and they weren't actually paying them accordingly. And so we've left both those factories. But I would say that the process in the early days being more relationship driven didn't uncover that. Now we're double auditing. We're being very strict around how we do it um, and much more specific about what we expect from factories. And the team, you know, the person who runs all factory development on the apparel side, she's been at Everlane for six years. So we traveled together for a long time. So a lot of those values she carries through. Now, I would say as we're starting to scale, it's there's certain things where you get bigger and you're trying to decide what's right or wrong. So for example, China tariffs are up and that means a lot of cashmere that's made in China comes with tariffs. So we're looking at where do we move and it's difficult because there might be countries like Cambodia or Myanmar that have um, much lower duties and the they have issues from a call it government labor standards but that doesn't mean you can't find a great factory within that and so you start to teeter this line of do we go to a great factory that's actually trying to lift this country up and what happens if something else were to happen in Cambodia um, like it did in Bangladesh and Rana Plaza we may be working with an amazing factory and so we're trying to be really thoughtful about how do we go into places like that where we could actually both help the economy and find a great partner but do it in a way that educates people and prevents if something were to happen that it doesn't cause all of a sudden this backlash uh, where we haven't been fully upfront with the customer. So something like that, we just have to rethink how we go into a country like that and be very up clear with the customer about what the risks are in the country versus the factory, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Um, in terms of macroeconomic or things, just global issues happening, how much does do the tariffs or, you know, unrest in some country where you have, you're working with one or two factories, how much is that factoring into your pricing? And, and is, oh, have you, does, yeah. and have you had to change prices, increase prices, decrease prices? Like how, how stuck are you on having one, one specific price for, for a garment and marketing it around that, that price? We're much better at lowering prices to the customer than we are at raising prices. We really don't like raising prices. We've um, we've lowered prices, as you know, when this cashmere came out. And I believe we told that story four, three to four years ago when cashmere pricing came down. And as a result, we were able to lower our costs. We passed that on to the customer. Cashmere pricing actually went up last year. So as a result, what we did is we increased parts of it, but then we introduced re-cashmere with virgin wool. Uh, that allowed us to both be more sustainable, but offer an entry price point for the customer as well as alpaca. So we've sort of been thoughtful about how we build out the assortment to make sure that the customer doesn't, that always has options at different prices. 
but we tend to always steer towards doing right by the customer. And it was interesting. I was on a walk with, you know, a candidate five days ago, and they said the company they previously worked at loved to say they were customer first and loved to say they do right by the customer. I think that's a value a lot of people hold through. But uh, he said that at the time when, when decisions came to it, and they were decisions about margin or how much money to make. They almost always made decisions that meant more profit for the company and less for the customer. And I think that's something I see time and time again as companies grow or new management comes in that doesn't necessarily hold the values that they don't do right by the customer all the time. And that's a relentless pursuit. You just got to be vigilant about it. How do you save costs? Where have you cut costs in your supply chain or in in your whole process that that maybe you saw in other companies that that you thought, oh, you know, this is something that we can do better on, that we can you know be more frugal about. What what areas are you more careful financially? I would say we're more careful financially by the number of styles we release. We try to be thoughtful. Uh, Zara introduces between 500 to 800 new styles a month. We've got less than that on our site. So that's an example of a place where we're really careful about what we do so that we can just do right and invest in the product. And then we like to continuously reinvest in that product and make it better and better. So the story of our outerwear going from basic polyester to recycled to now we just launched today redown which is both renewed on the polyester level so entirely made out of recycled water bottles and then the actual down is you know recycled as well from old comforters um, sourced across europe Uh, and that's this constant pursuit to do better and obviously the sustainability is a piece we try to bring in sustainability does sometimes tend to be a little bit more expensive and we try to be thoughtful about who our partner is there so that we don't have to pass that cost on to the customer and we'll eat some of it this podcast is delivered by dhl as the logistics partner of many of fashion's most prestigious businesses from billion dollar brands to emerging designers and innovative smes dhl is stitched into the fabric of the 2.4 trillion dollar industry Present in more than 220 countries and territories, DHL provides tailored and comprehensive Go Green logistics and business solutions that enable fashion businesses to grow sustainably as they expand domestically and into new international markets. For more information about DHL and how it can help your business increase transparency around your environmental impact, minimize logistics-related emissions, and offset what cannot be avoided, visit logistics.dhl. When did environmental responsibility really come into the conversation at Everlane, and and what were the kind of the first steps you took? And you just you just mapped out one of the processes that have have changed within the company but what else are are you doing as an organization i would say that the environmental piece has always been there in different shapes or forms there's we understand the cognitive dissonance of what we do we sit there and say hey let's make the world more sustainable but then we're selling product uh, what i believe is we have this f- strong north star that you can be both sustainable and live you know a successful and enjoyable life and right now the world believes those two have to be in in uh, competition with each other and we believe that they're one and the same if done well and so in that sense we've always been against the massive amounts of consumerism but trying to offer a more sustainable approach so that started with 
you know, us shutting down on Black Friday the first two years. Now we do the Black Friday fund where we allow people to shop but then give back. That started with saying we're just going to do basics. We're not going to do crazy fashion. That started with even our um, T-shirts when they were made in L.A. They weren't packaged in plastic. They were sent out um, in boxes without plastic, which was sort of unique. As we've gotten bigger, the sourcing of material, the plastic that does come out of other products, all of those just have much more impact. And we started to say, okay, it's not just enough to design it into the product from a let's do basics, let's not you know run crazy promotions, but let's actually start designing the product from the ground up to be more sustainable compared to its prior version. And that's, as we've scaled, we've realized how critical that is. And obviously without, everyone knows uh, without a doubt that climate change is real and that we can see it and feel it now. Whereas even 10 years ago, I think that was open-ended. One thing that has come up recently that is very obvious, but it's something that no one has really talked about for the last five years is in order to really be sustainable, there is a logic that you just shouldn't buy anything else. Totally. That you should just keep. And and so as someone who is trying to do the right thing, but also running a for-profit business or, or pretend, you know, well, you want to be for-profit, how do you reconcile that? How do you, when you're, when consumers come in and say, I'm not buying anything for the next year or what have you, what, how do you, how do you make what you're doing okay in, in a culture? We have looked at it in a few different ways. One I would say is that we've decided to change from the inside out. So there's organizations that might be like Greenpeace that we are huge believers in and supporters of that might push industries to change from the outside in. We believe that our opportunity is to change from the inside out and bring the customer along in that journey. You are totally correct. The best thing we can do is, you know, everybody stop consuming. The reality that that happens isn't something that we are in the business of changing. And I think that the trend has generally been that people want newer, newer, newer all the time. What we are trying to say is that, okay, you can actually have that newness, but let's do it in a way that actually, that uses material that's from the planet today. So things like Renew, Recotton, Rewool. The notion isn't to say don't buy. The notion is to buy products that have a longer life on this planet or use materials that exist already. And that's, I guess, our view of sustainability is that we are, we're going to have 10 billion people. We got to feed them. Sure, you could say everybody can eat less. Everybody can buy less. How do we actually just create it so that you can enjoy life and live it in a less impactful way on the planet? That's what we see as the future. What we try to avoid is being gluttonous, which is like why on Black Friday Fund we're not running massive discounts. Throughout the years, you've also, I think you've done a lot around transparency and campaigns around that that have given Everlane a point of view or almost given a brand. I don't know if, if you can give a brand an opinion, but it feels like Everlane has one. And there have also been more, you know, social impact campaigns. I'm thinking about the 100% human campaign that that kind of stuff and it, you know this topic is has been top of mind at BOF for a while you know how far do you go in terms of politically charged or social responsibility 
taking action in those in those areas and and how do you communicate it with the consumer without feeling like you're getting on a soapbox or or what have you we are somewhat on a soapbox right we're pushing sustainability we're pushing equal rights and i think we're okay with that right because we do have very strong values what we try to choose our values around is what we believe to be basic human rights those are things like equality um, things to being treated fairly, uh, the right to vote, uh, the right for a sustainable planet. And so those are pieces where we believe the world should be open and more transparent. And that's obviously what we're trying to bring to life, both through the product and the way we tell stories. We just do it in retail. But I, the belief is much greater than that. And I believe we're okay with I know we're okay with being somewhat on a soapbox, and that's fine. And if people don't agree with it, they may choose to still buy our product because the product is the product. It's a good product at a good price. But we're also okay knowing that we support specific initiatives that some people may view as political and we just view as basic human rights. So how do you convey those values and not... It is marketing in some ways, but it is also brand values. And how do you convey those things to a consumer I guess this comes back to your copy and not not to harp on it, but how do you say those things without them thinking that it's just a buzzword or what have you? I'm looking at this Bernstein research note that I got a couple of weeks ago, and it was about luxury companies are increasingly basing their storytelling on craftsmanship and sustainability, and they have a list of words that consumers are interested in or attracted to. Oh so there's artisan skill. <laughs> I don't even want to know. I'll, this I'll send it no, to no, you. No, no, don't send it. I don't even <laughs> want to know. I don't want to be biased. Cra- craftsmanship, responsibility, social emission is one of the words, oh, yeah, apparently yeah, yeah, recycle. Yeah, yeah. But so the point being that like a lot of brands use this, these words in, in a really false way. How do you convey it? So it doesn't feel false. Because it's not, I think a lot of people are applying words onto what they're already doing. Right. So, Hey, we run a fashion show. Let's make it sustainable. Let's buy carbon offsets. I'm sorry. That's you're just running the waterfall in the water and then trying to collect it with buckets. That's not a fundamental viewpoint on if we want to be more sustainable, here are the actions or have lower carbon impact. Here are the actions we're taking. You can't have your cake and eat it too. And that's a really critical aspect of the way we do things. We're not applying words. We're starting from the ground at the bottom of the ground and saying, what do we believe in? We believe in the right that um, people should have the right to vote around aspects like that. We believe in the idea that climate change is real and we need to make change. And we build up from there. What does that mean for our product? What does that mean for our brand? And that's a different approach than we believe in this thing, so let's just slap it. And so you've not seen us make huge claims against carbon yet because we don't have a specific... We have a viewpoint, but we haven't been able to roll it through on a product-by-product basis. And so while we've done it on one product like Tread, we're not just going to go out there and say we're carbon neutral. It's, it, I think it's better than none if we were to do it, which we do on a number of products. We're not going to go out there and advertise it like crazy. We want to go from the ground up and figure out what the right thing to do is um, like we did for Renew, which is we're removing all virgin plastic from our supply chain, period, full stop. The consumer's response to all of this, and you mentioned, you know, 10 years ago, we really couldn't feel the effects of climate change. And now, you know, you can talk, you talk to anybody in any part of the world and it's way hotter than it was, or it feels way hotter than it was 10 years ago, more, you know, an increasingly 
large part of the time. And so what do you think about the consumer's behavior? Everyone talks about shifts in consumer behavior. I've written the word shift in consumer behavior probably 500 times in the last five years. But what do you think they really are? What does the consumer want? And do, and you, you've been doing this for, what, eight years? So you've seen the consumer actually change. What do you think the fundamental changes actually are? Yeah, it's funny. I think when we're in it, you think things are changing all the time. But eight years is a really short period of time in general. Uh, hundred years in the grand scheme of the world, the planet is um, a very short time, but it's a very quick, like long time for the industrialization of the world as we've seen it in the past two to three hundred years. And the past 10, 15 years since the advent of mobile and internet has just totally changed the way people um, adapt and catch on to what's important and make change around it much faster than the past. And so I think with climate change actually happened, that's been one that people can react to really fast. Social injustice, all of those types of key issues come to the surface much faster. I do believe that there is in the in the US, no doubt there's this I don't know if this is a fundamental shift, but we're sitting at a point where there's two sides um, and we haven't had a system that has given back to people in a great way. And so you see a lot of tension from the haves and haves nots, and that's a real issue that the US needs to solve. Climate change is a real issue. The challenge is we're already late. So how do we fix what's been done and move forward to do better? Most people are moving forward. I think it needs to be both pieces. And I we don't have the answer to the fix what's been done, but we are trying to fix what is today with product by product, making it more climate driven. And then I would say people are being more, more casual, more connected. That's something we pay a lot of attention to is just how fluid the world is today, both gender wise, work to life wise. Everything is just fluid and open in a way that it's never been um, that I think has changed mindsets for individuals. Looking back on the last eight years, what has been the hardest part, especially in terms of of how you built your supply chain and, and how you've made tried attempted to make every part of the business super transparent? What has been the greatest challenge in, in that particularly? I think the greatest challenge was, one, hiring really great people in the early days. I don't think that we understood exactly what we were building and the kinds of individuals we needed around the table, both, you know, values wise and skills wise, and probably under compensated for that. And then the, the second piece was really finding our voice. We felt like we knew what we were doing. And I think this is the journey of most people in life. Like you, you kind of know what's important to you, but you're on this journey over decades to own that and have a stronger voice around it. I think we've now really codified our mission and values in a way that allows us to run faster with more purpose. And that's just taken time because the world is changing quickly and we needed to figure out where we sat and where we viewed the next 10 years that we could make an impact. We we talk about, and I'm glad you said climate change instead of sustainability because the word sustainability, uh, when it yeah, when it applies to invite, yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't make the most sense, but it does make sense in terms of running a sustainable business yep. or, or what have you. And one one thing that is interesting about Everlane is, I know you've raised money, but compared to a lot of other direct to consumer companies, you've you haven't raised so much. 
why is that? What has held you back from raising a ton of money and, you know, going down the same route that a lot of other brands that have come up in the last 10 years have gone? Yeah, I think we've always had the belief that good things take time and you there's no rush, right? And I would say that's the other thing I've done really well is with the company. And I remember now that we've, since the beginning, we've had a lot of ideas and we'll test, but we constantly cut back to the things that matter and get closer and closer to doing the right thing for the customer and the planet. And in that way, fundraising, I I believe if you raise too much, distracts you from that sort of relentless pursuit to do right by the customer and the planet. Because look, if something if something is a good price and good product, people talk. It's not like we're sitting in a vacuum and we just buy something and don't tell anyone. People want to share stories. And our view has been that if we do that well and offer a good product at a good value, that the customer will share that out and tell that story. And money can be a distraction from that. I mean, it's no different. I don't I don't know if this analogy is helpful, but all of a sudden you see celebrities that get rich and they start buying fancy cars and they start um, living a certain lifestyle and you wonder, is that actually making them happier? And data time and time again shows no and oftentimes they're depressed. So money only solves one problem, which is money. Um, and so we've just been really focused on solving the right problems. I'm sure a lot of young entrepreneurs come to you and, and ask for advice or or are trying, maybe they're stocking the Everlane offices in San Francisco. But if, exactly. if, if someone comes to you and says, I want to build a program that, you know, we're doing everything in a environmentally friendly, socially conscious, in the most careful way and, and doing it the best way possible, what is kind of the first thing you tell them to look at or, or the one piece of advice that you give them? surprisingly there are not a line of people waiting for advice so i don't know well maybe that's because we're doing so well here on this podcast but the the thing i would say is that i go back to the customer and you have to balance what you think is right for the planet and then what is right for the customer and oftentimes there are people who are too much on the planet side and as a result you're getting a very expensive product that is 100% sustainable, but not affordable by anybody. And I remember, um, you know, a friend called me recently saying, people, he said, oh, a journalist was criticizing Everlane because they said the real sustainable truth is that only thing that's sustainable is luxury. And I'm like, that is a ridiculous statement because who can afford luxury? And so on the one side, if you're doing what's right by the planet, um, and they said luxury because it's really um, made to last. And I think you could be made to last at a much more affordable price. So you got to be doing what's right for the customer and then balancing that out against the planet. But if you go too far customer, you might end up, you know, doing nothing for the planet. So it's this like tension, which I think is really good that ultimately keeps pushing you to do the thing that can be best for both. But it takes a lot of time to get there. And if you take too much time to do that, you'll never launch anything. So you're always balancing time, customer and planet. Is there one thing you wish you had known back then that that you know now about all of this? Yeah, and so I want to say, because I I get asked that question, I want to say the things that we did really well, I'll say again, which was um, ask a lot of questions, just always asking questions, and then um, really focusing um, and doing right 
by the customer and being willing to move past things that aren't working. So if you're always saying, hey, this is right for the customer, you get less attached to your ideas. Those two things I think we did really well. What I think we didn't do well was I didn't understand the importance of just having really great people around the table. We had good people, but there was a lot of people we just hired because we needed people. And I think slowing down to speed up around hiring um, is really critical because people say hire slow, fire fast. I think what's really important is just knowing what you're looking for. That's the part. It's not just... Once you know what you're looking for, you can hire fast. I would say we didn't do a great job understanding what we really needed around the table or who we needed around the table. That really drives the drives the lesson home. Thank you, Michael. This was great. It was so nice to chat with you. Yeah, I know. Looking forward to hanging out sometime. Thank you for listening to Drive, delivered by DHL, where we hear stories of sustainable entrepreneurship. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, And you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, biannual special print editions, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education.